Our Father, we look at the news and our hearts almost despair. The news of what's going on in Ukraine and the gross injustice. And we have heard the story of so many of your godly people there who are suffering. And our hearts grieve. And even as we come to worship, we continue to uphold these precious people to you. And ask for the furtherance of the gospel through their testimony of faithfulness to you. Now, it's not just what's going on in Ukraine that leads us to despair. We see unrighteousness almost flourishing in this country. For those of us who are a little older, it just seems incomprehensible. Some of the things that are taken now, not only for normal, but are celebrated, lauded, encouraged, exhorted. We look at this world and our hearts grieve. And now we look at this passage and our hearts soar. For your provision of Christ. And for what is in store for us. And for the certainty of Christ's victory. And the fulfillment of all your promises. Oh Father. Make us to be like those of old. Who walked in faith. And walked pleasing to you. And would you by your grace. Even as we have sung, would you by your grace change us by this word? We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. A year ago, Siren Kale, a journalist for The Guardian in Great Britain, wrote the following. In the past fortnight, I have bought the following items online. <laughs> you know where this is going, don't you? A hideous cat tree that takes up most of my living room, a lavender pillow spray, two scarves, a pair of gloves, two candles, a sheet mask, a pair of fleece-lined jogging bottoms, so comfy, a card holder, and an under-eye brightening cream. None of these purchases were essential. Many I haven't even taken out of the package, leaving them in a pile by the front door. When COVID hit, I decided... No more frivolous purchases. Journalism is a precarious industry at the best of times. But the pandemic just wouldn't stop. March dragged into June and then into January. My days were flabby and formless. I was bored. So I started buying things online for the small thrill of hitting checkout. And having them arrive a few days later, a treat to break up the monotony of yet another day. I am not alone. Maybe you know people like Siren. Maybe you are people like Siren. 
that that laughter gives you away. (laughs) Where do you go to find your satisfaction and pleasure? Uh, I, I know you know the right answer. I go to God. I go to Jesus. I open my Bible. I pray. I read. I sing. I fellowship. I go to church. I cultivate relationships. I share the gospel. Okay. Now, where do you really go for satisfaction? What's your pleasure? Where do you find your delights? We have just begun a series of sermons in Hebrews chapter 11 entitled Living by Faith. And last week we said that living by faith is living with confidence that God will accomplish everything that he has promised to do. We do not need to despair about the future. And the majority of this chapter is a series of testimonies to people who lived that way, who did not despair and did live dependently on God in trying and difficult circumstances. This morning, we get the privilege of starting to unpack some of those stories. They are real stories with real, hard circumstances. Do hard times preclude living by faith? And what does a faithful life in hard times look like? In verses 4 to 6, we will find that the writer affirms this, that the way to live by faith is to live for God's pleasure. If we want to live by faith, if we want to have lives that are characterized as being faithful to God, we will live for the pleasure of God, for delight in Him. To live for God's pleasure means we want what He wants. And specifically, it means that we want what He wants for our lives, personally. We lay aside all of our personal and our fleshly desires and we submit to His direction for us. We want what He wants for us because we believe that what He wants for us is best for us. It's not second best. It's the very best. And in these verses, verses 4 to 6, we will find two examples of men who pleased God in adverse circumstances and then three principles for pleasing God. Two examples and three principles for the way to live by faith, by living for God's pleasure. Let us turn first to verse 4. And um, we're going to do a little... Flipping back and forth in the Bible, so you can take your finger, one finger, and put it in Genesis 4, and another finger in Hebrews 11, which is where we will start. And we will start with the story of Abel, who pleased God in his obedient worship. You know, it's one thing to say, I will live for the pleasure of God, to please Him in every circumstance. And it is another thing to say that, When everyone is opposed to us and when we are facing hostility, criticism, harshness, and bitterness, will we seek to be pleasing to Him then? Will we worship Him then? And that's the theme of this first story, the story of Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We've just read the story in Genesis You remember that Abel was the second son of Adam and Eve. Now, some have have asked the question, now, as 
as the writer to Hebrews starts with the story of those who were faithful, why didn't he start with the first man, Adam? I think there are at least two reasons for that. One is, while I do believe that Adam was a man after God's heart, a, a man who had genuine faith in God, we also understand that it is through Adam and his sin and his rebellion that sin entered the universe, or entered our universe anyway, and sin was transmitted to all of mankind. And so while Adam was a faithful man, there is also a sense in which it is his unfaithfulness that that brought sin to everyone. It would be more than a little ironic to stick him in this list. I think there's a second reason why Adam isn't in this particular list, and that is because there was a time when Adam had not sinned and he did enjoy delight and fellowship with God and he was fellow and he was faithful to God, but But that fellowship was different from our fellowship because he saw God face to face. He walked with him in the garden. He had seen God face to face. And in that sense, he had no need of faith because he saw what is unseen to us. And so the writer of the Hebrews starts not with Adam, but with Abel. What does the writer say about Abel? And what does Genesis say about Abel? He notes, the writer of the Hebrews does, that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Flip back to Genesis chapter 4 and just remind ourselves of What's going on in this account? Cain was the older. Abel was the younger. They both had jobs, if you will. Abel was a keeper of the flocks, a sheep herder, probably. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was an agrarian. He produced the grain that would provide them the bread that they needed to eat, and so on. Both jobs were appropriate. Both jobs were good. Both jobs were honoring to God. Verse 3, Genesis 4. It came about in the course of time. Literally that phrase in the course of time is at the end of days. That Cain, isn't it interesting that Cain is mentioned first, brought an offering. And the the suggestion, I'm not dying on this hill, but the suggestion is that there was something that had been communicated from God to both Cain and Abel about a about a process of worship that they both understood. And now was the appropriate time to worship, and they were both responding. They both understood what it was that God expected of them, and they both came. Cain, verse 3. Brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. He brought what he had. So he'd been working and he'd been laboring and he had produce and he brought from that produce. Abel also, verse 4, brings an offering. And then it says at the end of verse 4, Abel, excuse me, the Lord had regard for Abel. And for his offerings. And the sense is that he had regard not just for the offering, but for the person. 
We might say for his heart. And I think that's part of what's going on in Hebrews. What the writer to the Hebrews is intimating. Notice that Hebrews 4 says, because he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. Internally, inwardly, there'd been a transformation in Abel that he was righteous and God looked favorably on his righteousness. In the same way, it says in verse 5, but for Cain, for the person and for his offering, God had no regard. So even as God accepted Abel for his righteousness, he rejected Cain for his unrighteousness that made Abel's offering worthy and Cain's offering unworthy. The question is, why did God accept Abel and reject Cain? There is something that is in this account in Genesis that relates to the offering itself, right? God rejects the offering. Why does God reject Cain? Why does God reject the grain offering? Most commentators, I don't know, I read a pile of them this week, and most of them, with about three exceptions, if I'm remembering correctly, said something like, Cain brought a grain offering and not an animal offering. And it takes an animal's death to atone for sin. And so God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. Well, that sounds good, except they were bringing what they had. Abel had animals. Cain had grain. There's nothing wrong with bringing what you have. Further, we don't know that this is a sin offering. In fact, my guess is is that it wasn't a sin offering because it says... Verse 3, it came about in the course of time. That is, in the regular course of events when you would come for worship. And he's not talking about a sin offering particularly. He's just talking about coming for worship. And they both knew that they were supposed to come for worship and they both knew that they were supposed to bring something. It is true that later on, a sin offering did demand an animal sacrifice of some kind. But there were also a great many other kinds of offerings that were unrelated to sin. So offerings for peace, meal, burnt offerings, and free offerings. And many of those, most of those, did not require animal sacrifices. Grain sacrifices were perfectly acceptable. So I don't think it's a problem of meat and bread. I mean, I like meat as much as the next guy. But I don't think that's what God is saying here. There are a couple of hints both in the text in Hebrews and in Genesis, that get get overlooked. One is, I've already pointed to, and that is that there's something that is going on internally about the person. It's the attitude of the heart. It's the readiness to worship rightly with a right heart. Abel's righteous. Cain is unrighteous. And it doesn't matter what you bring if you are unrighteous. If you try to appease God with unrighteous sacrifices and an unrighteous heart, 
you cannot satisfy God. It takes a righteous man who has been declared righteous by God in order to satisfy God with his worship. Notice that uh, in Hebrews 11, the writer emphasizes that twice Abel is operating by faith. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered. End of the verse, God testified about his gifts and through faith or by faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He was operating by faith then and what we affirm now, even today, is that he was operating by faith and that a man comes to God only on the basis of faith and not on the basis of his own works. We also understand from the passage in Genesis that the Cain was operating in a different way. When God rejects his offering, he doesn't say, what must I do to be right before God? But he becomes angry, indignant, self-righteous. And that flows over into an anger, not just against God, but the anger terminates on his brother Abel and he kills him. His unrighteousness is evidenced through his actions against Abel. There's this other thing that is going on in this text that I think gives us a clear picture of what it is about Abel that made his sacrifice righteous. Verse 3, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. What's the firstlings? That's the first sheep that's born. Or the first number of sheep. And he brought the very best of them. He didn't withhold and say, well, that's a good one. I'm going to keep that one for you know, further breeding so I can get more to bring to God. He brought the best. He brought the first. And the sense is he brought it immediately. He brought the first when he had nothing else in reserve. He brought the first when he didn't know if there would be a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh. He brought the first when he didn't know if he'd have more to eat later. He brought the first in faith, trusting that God would provide for him in the future. And that's the very point that the writer of the Hebrews is making about all these people. They operated in faith, trusting that God would provide for them and care for them on into eternity. Remember what we read in chapter 10? Verse 35, don't throw away your confidence in Christ, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's, he's going to keep his promises. Just trust him. And that's exactly what Abel was doing. He was acting in confidence and trust of God. And what was the result? Of Abel's sacrifice that he gave in Genesis chapter 4. 
Hebrews tells us, I have too many things. I don't have enough fingers and I'm able to point and gesture and I've lost my marker. Hebrews 4 tells us, by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice and obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Where did that testimony come from? It came, the text tells us, from God. God testified. God offered a courtroom testimony twice. This verse affirms it. That Abel was righteous and had acted in faithful obedience in worship because of that righteousness. God proscribed the form of worship. And Abel said, that's the way I'm coming to you. I'm not holding anything back. And the difference between Abel and Cain was, Cain said, well, I'll give you something of it. But I'm not giving you the best. I'm not giving you the first. I've got to make sure my, my, my bets are covered and that I'm provided for in the future. And the end of Abel's life is that though he is now dead, he still speaks. Some have suggested that that's a reference to the end of the story where God says to Cain, you know, Abel's blood is still crying from the ground. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's saying thousands of years later after Abel has died... His testimony to faith in me still stands. And now 2,000 years after this is written, the testimony of Abel still stands. You can trust God. You can give Him your best. You can sacrifice your all. And He will be faithful to fulfill His promises to you. You know, we live in a world where we want iron-clad guarantees and contracts, right? Right? I counted this week and I'm sure I missed something. I have five kinds of insurance I pay for every month. It's ridiculous. And I'd let it go, but if I get in a car accident, I'm going to get in a world of hurt if I don't have car insurance, so I'm not going to let that one or others go. But that's just indicative of we just want guarantees. We want guaranteed bonuses and, and we want contracts that are, that are sure and certain. We don't want any uncertainty in life. We want a guarantee that we won't get COVID and we won't die. And here we have an example of faithful living that says, I don't know what the future will bring, but I know the one in whom I trust and I will worship him. He says, I know what God demands. And that's what I will joyfully do, no matter what it costs me. That's what it means to live faithfully in this world. So we have the example of Abel. We also have the example, verse 5, of Enoch. This This is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. It's a really remarkable story. This is... This is... This is not just one of the most amazing stories in the Bible, but it's also one of the most underreported stories in the Bible. Apart from this passage and the passage we read earlier in Genesis 5, Enoch is mentioned in Jude 14 and in two chronological lists, one in Chronicles and one in Luke. And that's it. That's everything we know about Enoch. Almost nothing. Enoch is remarkable in two ways. It is said in Genesis, we'll see this in just a moment, that he walked with God. Only two men 
are said to have walked with God. That phrase, walked with God, is used of two men in Scripture only. Enoch and Noah. That's it. That makes him pretty remarkable. He's also remarkable in that only Enoch and Elijah were taken to heaven without death. Everyone else died first. That's pretty exclusive company, isn't it? What does the writer of the Hebrews say about this amazing man? By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Notice a couple of times in that passage, three times in fact, it says that he was taken up right at the beginning. Enoch was taken up in the middle. God took him up at the end. He was being taken up. Three times it says he's taken up. The word has a sense of being transferred. He's put in another place. He was here and oops, now he's there. What's interesting is that the author does not emphasize he was transferred instantly, but he emphasizes why he was transferred. Did you pick that up as I was reading? He was taken up so that. That's why. That's because. So that he would not see death. Now, there is a sense in which he saw death, right? I mean, he lived in a fallen and broken world. And he saw animals die. He saw animals sacrificed. He saw animals die apart from sacrifice. He saw people die. We're going to see that in just a minute. So it's not that he was unacquainted with death entirely, but he was unacquainted with death intimately. There was something about his life that was such that God said, I want to reward him with something so that he will not experience the totality of the fullness of death. Only he and Elijah experienced that. Even our Savior saw death in this way. In fact, we could say that our Savior saw death more fully than any man has ever seen death because he had to experience the fullness of God's wrath to atone for our sin. And then... In verse 5, Hebrews 11, the writer quotes from Genesis 5, and he was not found because God took him up. So he's there and he's gone. And the sense is, where did he not go? And they do a diligent search. I mean, they're going all over the place and they're looking. Where did he go? And he's not found because God took him up. And there's a sense of finality to that. It's done. And it's a reminder that there is no going back on God's action. And it's a reminder also that it's God that did it. That God has interjected himself into the story of Enoch and said, I'm going to do something remarkable, something that no one else could do. And I alone will do it for you. Why did God take him up? Because he obtained the witness that he was pleasing to God. As with Abel, in verse 4, and as with all faithful men, verse 2, 
Enoch was approved by God. Hebrews says he was pleasing to God. Turn over with me to Genesis. And I want you to see this. Genesis says that he walked with God. What does it mean for a man to walk with God? It simply means that he lives all of his life in conscious fellowship with God. It does not mean that Enoch's circumstances were different. He was still a husband. He was still a father. I'm sure he went to funerals and likely had to bury people. It doesn't mean that his his circumstances changed and that he no longer had to hunt for food and grow crops to sustain himself. It doesn't mean that he no longer had any bothersome neighbors that have parties into late at night on Saturday night when you're trying to prepare for preaching on Sunday morning. Not that that happened to anybody I know last night. No, he still had neighbors and he still had relationships and sin was still around him. He still had all of the responsibilities of life and yet in the responsibilities of life, he lived in such a way that was remarkably different in conscious dependence on God. And God took satisfaction in Enoch's fellowship with him. And that, brothers and sisters, is a remarkable statement. That God is satisfied with the fellowship of Enoch. Moses' account in Genesis 5 is brief, but it's really notable. So I want you to take a look at what's going on here. We jumped into it in the middle in verse 18, as we read it earlier. Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch, etc. This section actually starts in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Abraham. And Moses is saying, I'm going to tell you a story. Let me tell you the story. Did I say Abraham? Adam. Abraham's coming. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Let me tell you the story about Adam. Remember Adam? The first man? Let me tell you his story. This is what happened to the family of Adam. What's remarkable is that as you look back in this book, the book of Genesis, while Adam is obviously prominent, he's only mentioned by name four times prior to this. In chapter 2, um, at creation and the creation of Eve particularly. In chapter 3, verse 17, his name is mentioned. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. It's not much of a commendation, is it? He also shows up again by name in verse 21. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why did he have to do that? Because of sin. And then verse 25 of chapter 4. Adam had relations with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Those are the only four mentions of Adam by name. Two of those are specifically related to his sin. Now remember, after Adam sinned, God promised a curse. Did it come true? Did it happen? Did Adam and others die? 
because of his sin. You know what's notable is that prior to this, we have three references in chapters 1 to 4 of death. We have Cain killing Abel, and we have Lamech, verse 23 of chapter 4, killing a man and killing a boy. We have three instances of murder in the first four chapters. Those are the only references to death. There's no, there's no reference prior to chapter 5 to someone just dying of old age or some kind of illness. And so the question is, what happened to Adam? Well, let's look and see. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. Adam lived. Verse 6. Or excuse me, verse 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. First instance of a man's death that's recorded. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Seth lived, became a father. Verse 8, So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years. Enosh lived, and he became the father of Kenan. So all the days, verse 11, of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years, verse 12, and he became the father of Mahalel, verse 14. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. All the way through this chapter, he lived, he became a father, he died. He lived, he became a father, he died. He lived, he became a father, he died. All the way through this story. What's the story of Adam? The story of Adam is death. The story of Adam is the curse of sin. The story of Adam is the hopelessness of life apart from God. And then, in the middle of this story, Verse 18, Jared becomes the father of Enoch. Jared lives 962 years and he dies. Verse 20, verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years, became the father of Methuselah. Watch verse 22. Then Enoch not lived... Enoch walked with God. Enoch is not only one of the only two people in the Bible that it says he walked with God, but he's the only one in this chapter. Everyone else, it says he lived, 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 he lived. Enoch walked with God. The story of Adam is a story of cursing and death. The story of Enoch is a story of life that is to be found in walking with God, in conscious fellowship with God. 
He lived in the same world that everybody else did. He had all the same stuff going on around him. And in the midst of all the tumult of everything else in the world, he found a way to say, life is about my fellowship with God. And he walked with him. And then verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. All the way through this chapter, he lived X number of years and he died. He lived X number of years and he died. And with Enoch, God says there's another way to live. And it's in fellowship with me. And if you live in fellowship with me, you don't have to die. There's a way out. You know, it's, it's interesting. The way Moses writes this, he could have just said, verse 5, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Verse 8, so all the days of Seth were 912 years. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years. But that's not what he says. He gives the number of years and then he adds, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. It's as if Moses is throwing that in our faces so that we cannot miss the reality of death and the reality of consequence. And the reality of curse that comes from sin. And then we get to Enoch. And we get Enoch's reward. He was not because God took him. Enoch was transferred to God. Death did not take him. God took him. And oh brothers and sisters. There's hope in that sentence. He took Enoch, and notice that it says, um, he took him, and the inference, verse 24, is not just that he took him, but he took him to himself. They had fellowship on earth, and the fellowship gets culminated in heaven. Enoch lived for what a man should live for on this earth. And he's rewarded in heaven. Says one writer about Enoch. Enoch is pictured as one who did not suffer the fate of Adam. You will die. Because unlike the others, he walked with God. And it is important to note that while he was under the curse of Adam, he had indwelling sin, he did in fellowship with God what Adam did not do. And brothers and sisters, that's a hope to us. Because the writer to the Hebrews holds out Enoch to us as an example Of the kind of life that we can live in faithfulness to Him.
Says one writer, Here then is a glimpse of grace in the midst of the spread of sin and death being a result of sin. Here is where the funeral bell stops tolling. One man walked with God and God took him. He escaped the clutches of his death. Clearly the pathway to life, the road one is to travel, the road one is to travel to escape the sin of death is the one of the pilgrim in which the person walks with God. He walks with God. So what's the writer of the Hebrews doing in this passage? He is reminding us that the transfer of Enoch to heaven was God's dramatic stamp of approval on Enoch's faithful life. This was God's grace gift to spare him the pain of death. And it was God's testimony in an ongoing way to the world of his grace and kindness, his reward for those who live with him and his provision for a death problem. And it's a reminder to us of God's design and gift for us, fellowship with him. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 5 in Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the story of Adam's life. What happened? And then he starts by reminding us of how Adam's life began. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. God has designed them, planned them, purposed them, given order to them, given direction to them. And designed them for fellowship with Him. And then chapter 3 comes. After creation in chapters 1 and 2. And we find in chapter 3 the intrusion of sin and death that breaks fellowship. But even as Enoch's story reminds us. God makes provision. For those who are underneath the curse of sin. And He gives He gives an allusion to that, a promise of that in chapter 3, verse 15, where he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is, you'll wound him, but he will crush you. And that is exactly what the one who he promised Jesus Christ our Savior has done. He has crucified, he has been crucified to the extent that sin and death are vanquished for those who have faith. Enoch looked forward in faith and he trusted God and cultivated fellowship with him, with God. And God rewarded him. Brother and sister, friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, And you don't have confidence that you can go to a baptistry and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior from my sins so that I can live for Him. Then you are just like everyone else in the story in Genesis chapter 5. You are under sin and you will die. And it will be hopeless for you unless you believe the one who has crushed 
Satan's head. And if you believe him, then you can have hope, confidence that he will fulfill all those promises for you and take you to heaven. I urge you, I urge you to believe in him and have fellowship with him. We live in a troubled and troubling world. We live in a world that is troubled around us. And we have all of our own personal troubles as well. Hardships that are unique to us. Hopes that are unmet. Struggles with sin that seem unrelenting. Things that don't work out the way we plan. What are we going to do? You're going to go to Amazon? Click the buy button one more time. You're going to go to Fox News for hope? You're going to go on vacation for rest? You're going to pursue relationships with sinners for satisfaction? You're going to go to work and try and get your encouragement there? Oh, brothers and sisters, here's our hope. Chapter 11 of Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. What do we do? We have faith in a faithful God and we live to be pleasing to Him and then He will satisfy us. Father, we commend ourselves to You. Thank You for these stories of these faithful men, Abel and Enoch. Almost the smallest of blips in our Bibles. Such scant attention seems to be given to them. And yet what attention is given to them is this, that they were faithful. And they had faith in you. And they believed you. Even while living in the midst of difficulty and perversity. Even under the curse of death. They believed you and had confidence of you. Oh, Father, might you be our confidence. I don't know that I've ever seen a time in this world where we have been so tempted to not be confident in you. And this is where we must flee to our Savior and to you who have overcome sin and who will keep your promises to your people. Would you provoke us and stimulate us and encourage us to faithfulness with you? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.